0: Welcome in everybody to episode two twenty three of the podcast that is sweeping America, the Eratoria Sports Podcast. First of all. It is great to be back. Obviously, last week I was traveling. I appreciate everybody's patience as I put out uh, what, I, what was a, definitely a non-traditional episode, not the type of thing I normally do. But I do hope that all of you guys enjoyed the Narcos show. Uh, Stephen Murphy, Javier Pena, the real-life Narcos. Actually had a bunch of you reach out to me, tell me how much you enjoyed it. So definitely something different, but something fun. And we are back to College Hoops today. And my goodness, my goodness. Do we have a lot to talk about today? We are going to open the show very quickly, talk about the bracket reveal yesterday as the NCAA Tournament Committee dropped their top 16 teams overall. It's already a mess because a bunch of teams lost. We will then transition to the Duke North Carolina game, wild game. I don't know that it was a great game. I don't know that it was a well-played game, but it was certainly entertaining. I think a lot of people are misplacing a lot of anger and hate and vitriol Uh, towards the refs when actually North Carolina was the one that lost and then I actually do want to get into Memphis because Memphis has been a sort of recurring topic not only on this show but also in the college basketball world over the last year year and a half as Penny Hardaway has gotten situated they lose again to South Florida a very bad team in the AAC they're 17 and 6 and it looks like very realistically they may miss the NCAA tournament and I got a lot of stuff to say about that then what we're gonna do We'll bring back a favorite segment of the listeners where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. So much stuff happened this weekend that I figured rather than spending you know, six minutes on each topic, we'd throw it into where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, where obviously I take a bunch of topics, some of them I've been right on, some of them I've been wrong on, and just kind of discuss what happened throughout the weekend. And we will wrap with two other kind of topics from the weekend. And again, it was a very busy weekend. I do want to touch a little bit on the World Wide West to the New York Knicks stuff because I had actually, I was surprised while I was traveling, a lot of you asking me, A.T., what does this mean? Is there anything to it? Does it matter? Should I be worried? Could John Calipari follow Worldwide West to the New York Knicks? And we'll wrap a little bit on Bobby Knight. Listen... Bobby Knight returned to Indiana for the first time in 20 years on Saturday, and I know that a lot of you, most of you, maybe even are not are not Indiana fans. You never liked Bob Knight, but I thought it was a really cool moment, and I am going to wrap on that. A lot to get into, like I said before we get started. I want to remind you, please subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. A lot of good guests coming up. A lot of good guests. i got two or three lined up, kind of college basketball analysts, insiders. And we're going to take this conversation to the next level, I think, over the next couple weeks as we get set for March, Selection Sunday, the NCAA Tournament. So make sure that you're subscribed. Do it on iTunes. You can do it on the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, Podcast Addict is where you should subscribe to the show. That's where I listen to the show. Uh, you can do it on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Pod Paradise, Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can listen to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. Some of you have asked for Nick Coffee. We'll try to get him on in the coming days. Make sure you're following on Instagram. Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram. Always, if there is a late-breaking story or news element, I like to go on there and do a little live video. So, if you, if you if you can't get enough of AT, if you're one of those people that wants more AT, uh, more than two episodes a week, the Aaron Torres Podcast Instagram page is the way to go. And finally, if you have any questions, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Very quickly, I do kind of want to open with the bracket reveal. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this because. I think it is a very creative and clever thing that the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee has done, but I think they're doing it at the wrong time. I think doing it on a Saturday before a college basketball weekend, I just don't think it works. And so I think in college football, and this is where the idea came from, where the selection committee in college football puts out their top four every week, it works in college football because... You put it out on Tuesday, and there's no games until Friday or Saturday, and so you have all this time to talk about the top four. Well, you know, LSU jumped Ohio State to number one, and what does it mean, and could Clemson leapfrog them, and you got like three days to talk about it. It's awesome. It works. In college basketball, it doesn't work because you put it out on a Saturday morning, and within two hours, it's irrelevant. For example, Michigan State was on the four line yesterday in the in the NCAA tournament selection uh thing, and by the but two hours later they lost to Michigan and they would be off the four line and so all I'll say really quick is that I do wish rather than doing it on a Saturday morning, they would maybe do it on a Sunday night right P- to pick a big game on a Sunday whatever it is put it on and then do the bracket reveal at 6 p.m. Sunday so it gives it a little more legs. We can talk about it a little bit more rather than doing it Saturday morning where I'm looking at the top 16 teams right now and I count five that lost over the weekend. Michigan State lost, West Virginia lost, Villanova lost, Oregon lost, Butler lost. That's five out of the top 16 teams that all lost. Auburn probably should have lost as well. So I have no great big takeaways I do think it's a very cool snapshot in time, though. I do think that the the most interesting thing, and I do think it's accurate, I do think it's correct, is that the top four seeds, if the season ended today, are Baylor, Gonzaga, San Diego State, and Kansas. Do I think they will be the top four come Selection Sunday? I really don't know. I really don't know, because I do know that San Diego State, if they lose a game, will probably fall off the one line. I do think if Gonzaga loses another game or two, they will fall off the one line, obviously Baylor still has some tough games ahead Kansas and Baylor play each other at least once potentially twice in the big 12 tournament and so there's a lot of basketball to be played but I do think it's cool I do think the committee got it right with the four number one seeds listen you can pick and choose I think Michigan State being a four seed didn't really feel right and they are going to be punished for losing they would not be a four seed in an updated bracket uh, I think West Virginia on the two line feels a little bit high to me. I feel like Butler on the four line feels a little bit high to me. But overall, listen, it, it, it was a fine exercise in just letting us know where the bracket is. I wish they would do it on a Sunday. That would give it more legs. That would give it more meat. By the way, if you didn't see the brackets, the top four seeds in each region were as follows. In the east, it was San Diego State as the number one seed. Duke is the number two. Maryland is the number three. Butler is the number four. In the South, Baylor one, Louisville two, Seton Hall three, Auburn four, Kansas one, Dayton two, Florida State three, Michigan State four. In the Midwest, and finally in the West, Gonzaga one, West Virginia two, Villanova three, Oregon four. So, again, it's it, it's it's a cool exercise. I think the one seeds are right. I could, you know, nitpick over having Michigan State as a as a four, West Virginia as a two, but I do think it was a cool snapshot in time. And we will reference it throughout the week, but of course things change all the time. That's why a Joe Lenardi does multiple bracketologies every week, because so much changes so fast. All right, so let's jump into what was obviously, look, it was the game of the day, It was certainly the most entertaining game of the day. I don't want to say it was the best game or the most well-played game because, uh, yeah, there was a lot that went wrong, but I am, of course, talking Duke, North Carolina, Battle of the Blue Bloods, eight miles separating them on Tobacco Road, and listen, I'm not going to do the whole, like, this is the greatest rivalry in the history of sports thing because I know that a lot of you get offended. I know a lot of you root for other teams and you think your rivalry is just as good, but I will say this. Duke, North Carolina, always entertaining, always interesting, and there were certainly, look, a ton at stake in this game. North Carolina is a team that obviously, as we know, was coming into this game 10-12 and 12 on the season. They were 0-2 since Cole Anthony returned, and they basically, at this point, I talked about it on last Sunday's episode, but at this point, they now need to win every game from here on out to make the NCAA tournament. They have to probably win the ACC tournament, I would think they basically have to go undefeated in the rest of the regular season to even be in consideration. And it's a shame because they're not playing terribly right now. They, they, they did nearly beat uh, Florida State at Florida State on Monday. I watched that entire game as I was flying back to the East Coast. And they they probably, not even probably, they definitively should have beaten Duke on Saturday. And so it is fascinating. Obviously, look, if you're, if you're listening to a college basketball podcast, you know how the game ended. But as I said, it was a wild game Duke does end up winning 98-96 in overtime, and Duke needs not one, but two buzzer beaters to seal the victory. The first buzzer beater was in regulation. Obviously, look, we know what happened, but Trey Jones gets fouled. Uh, The team is down three. He makes the first one, misses the second one intentionally in about as good of an effort missing a free throw as I've ever seen. He gets the ball back. He hits a buzzer beater to tie the game to send it to overtime. Then, of course, in overtime, Trey Jones back on the line, this time in a tie game. Another missed free throw. This one not on purpose because, obviously, if he makes that free throw, they win the game. Duke gets another offensive rebound. Trey Jones misses a shot, but it is is basically rebounded by Wendell Moore, buzzer beater, game over, Duke wins 98-96. So again, entertaining game, fun game, I don't know if it was a great game, and I'll get to why in a second, but it was a game that I felt like, frankly, Duke deserved to win. Well, if anything, I don't know if Duke deserved to win, but I know that North Carolina didn't deserve to win, and it was really funny, right, because obviously, look, as soon as the game goes final, I do what I do, I go on social media and I want to see what the conversation is, right? And I want to see what the conversation is because it does very much shape what I do on this show. It very much shapes what I do on Fox Sports Radio. But I want to see what you guys are talking about, what, what, what stood out to you, what plays stood out to you, what moments stood out to you. And I will tell you this, I was shocked at how many people were referencing one really bad call late as the reason that North Carolina lost this game. And I was stunned, and I completely disagree, and I will tell you this. If you are blaming the refs for North Carolina's loss and Duke wins, Duke's win, you're out of your mind. That's all I'm going to say. It's nothing personal. I like all of you. I love all of you. I appreciate everyone that takes their time to listen to this show, but if you are blaming the refs for Duke's loss, for for Duke's win, North Carolina's loss, I don't know what to tell you other than that you're wrong. So let's get into that last play, and then I'm going to backtrack and tell you why you're out of your mind. The, the, the play that so many people had an issue with came very late in the game in overtime. North Carolina at that point has a one-point lead with about 16 seconds to go in overtime. They go to inbound the ball, uh, and as the North, North Carolina player goes to grab it, surprise, surprise, a Duke player jumps in front of him. The Duke player knocks it out. It goes off North Carolina out of bounds. And many of you told me that that should have been a foul. And that part I actually don't disagree with. It probably should have been a foul call. Instead, it's not a foul call. Duke gets the ball back. There is a foul committed on North Carolina. Trey Jones makes the first one, misses the second one. This is, of course, in overtime, so this was not the one that he missed on purpose. He gets the rebound. Wendell Moore gets the tip in for the buzzer beater to win the game. And I had so many people tell me, A.T., oh my goodness, the refs gave Duke that game. That was an awful no call. North Carolina should have been going to the foul line with two free throws to make it a three-point game and potentially seal the game. And while I don't disagree with you, I don't know how you can possibly blame the refs for North Carolina losing that game and Duke winning the game. There is no one to blame for North Carolina losing that game but North Carolina, and so let's get into it because that is my big takeaway from this game. If you're blaming the refs for Duke winning and North Carolina losing, you're doing it all wrong, so let's get into it. And and we'll get into it for the very simple reason of this, is because as I look back on that game, North Carolina had to essentially do every single thing wrong possible to lose that game, and they still almost didn't do it. It's not as though Duke was hitting 38-foot three-point shots and and ones and... Yes, Duke executed, but this game was about North Carolina. North Carolina was in complete control, and like I said, they needed to do everything wrong to lose this game, and let's get into those stats, because I think when you hear the stats, because when I first read them on Sunday morning, I was shocked at how much North Carolina needed to do to lose this game. So North Carolina, here's what you need to know about North Carolina's effort in this game. North Carolina was up 13 points with four minutes to go. They were up five with one minute to go. In the final five minutes, they went five of 12 from the foul line, which obviously, mental math, they missed seven free throws in the final five minutes. They didn't score a field goal for the final two minutes and 18 seconds, and for the game, they had 27 turnovers and went 21 of 38 from the foul line. So let me repeat that. Let me repeat that. Let me slow it down that's me rewinding, that's terrible, terrible audio graphic, but again, I want to do this because I want to emphasize, anyone saying that the refs cost North Carolina the game, these are the facts, North Carolina was up 13 points with 4 minutes to go, North Carolina was up 5 points with 1 minute to go, and in the final 5 minutes, they went 5 of 12 from the foul line, they did not make a field goal for the final 2 minutes and 18 seconds of the game, And oh, by the way, they went 21 of 38 from the foul line, which is barely 50%. And they had 27 turnovers for the game. And you're telling me that the refs cost North Carolina the game? No. North Carolina cost North Carolina the game. And there is no one for North Carolina to blame but themselves. I will also say this. I know everybody hates Duke. I know everybody hates Coach K. But I was actually really impressed with how... They executed down the stretch of the game. Now, you can argue they sh- North Carolina's 10 and 12. Duke should have never been in position to have to rally the way that they did, and I cannot argue with that. But I also don't think that we can deny that Duke was phenomenal down the stretch. First off, there was, in fact, the missed free throw late in regulation by Trey Jones that ultimately tied the game, okay? Okay. And actually, I want to take it a step back before that, because what I actually want to do is go back to the final minute of the game when, as I said, Duke was up, was down by five, North Carolina was up by five, because I think that's where this whole thing really started. And this is where I thought Duke did a good job, and they did something that nobody else in college basketball does. And I know you guys all watch a bunch of college basketball, and I know that I watch a bunch of college basketball. And what happens when a team is down by five, six, eight, 10, 12 points with a minute to go? We know what they do, right? They start rushing down, jacking up bad threes, or the opposite, taking too much time off the clock, and then taking bad threes, then committing fouls, and they end up losing the game. So first of all, what I thought Duke did well, and what more teams need to do, when they were down by five with a minute to go, you know what they did? They just attacked the rim. And every time they got the ball, within five seconds, Trey Jones had the ball at the rim, and he was going in for an uncontested layup. And it makes sense, because with that much time on the clock, you don't need three-pointers, and the other team doesn't want to foul. And so I thought that's what Duke did well, just to put themselves in position to win the game late. They attacked, they attacked, they attacked. When they were down in regulation, they weren't taking bad threes. They weren't running all this kind of crazy offense. And to coaches that are listening, and all you, I, there's coaches in D1 that listen to this show. That was textbook. It wasn't, there is no textbook, but the textbook is just attack the basket because the other team doesn't want to foul. That's what Duke did. And that's what put them in the position for the missed free throw in regulation. And I look at what Trey Jones did. And again, it comes down to execution. Again, if you want to say, Duke should have never been in that position. Don't give Coach K too much credit. Okay, fine. But in late game situations, in big moments, it seems like Duke is always the better prepared team. Doesn't mean the shot always goes in. Doesn't mean they always win. I know they haven't won a national championship since 2015. I know they've only won one, you know, uh, they've only been to one Final Four in the last 10 years. So I'm not saying that they're flawless. I'm not saying that they're perfect. But late in games, they execute well. By the way, I'm thinking about that Florida State game last year. When Cam Reddish hit the buzzer-beater, perfectly executed out-of-bounds play. But in the case of the Trey Jones miss foul shot on Saturday, think about it. That there was nothing. It was the most perfectly executed missed free throw. And do you know why? Because Duke practiced it. This is what Trey Jones said after the game about the miss sh- the, the miss free throw that ended up tying the game to send the game to overtime. He told, um, he told ESPN sideline reporter Holly Rowe this. Me and my assistant coach, John Shire, have talked about that exact moment. He told me it's probably best to take a couple steps to the right so it ricochets. And by the way, if you go back and look at the video, he is to the right. He is to the right. And this is what he, he wrapped up by saying. In practicing it, I feel like it comes off the same spot every time. And so you can say that the refs late in the game that foul call should have never that foul call should have happened and gone against Duke. That's fine, but Duke perfectly executed the uh, the the miss free throw just to get the game to regulation, and it came from practice and it came from preparation. And I can't help but give Coach K and Duke credit for that. I know people don't want to hear it, and I can't help but think about everything that went wrong for North Carolina to put themselves in position to lose that game. And it's insane to me that people are trying to tell me that this has to do with a bad ref call or a bad this or a bad that or the final whistle in the final minute of overtime. I just go back to regulation. North Carolina was up by, again, I'll go through it one more time. They were up 13 points with four minutes to go. They were up five with a minute to go. They went five of twelve from the foul line in the final minute, final five minutes, and they went the last two eighteen of regulation without scoring a point. They didn't deserve to win, and now, very simply, it means that Duke moves on. Duke remains in second place in the ACC behind Louisville, and North Carolina very much needs to win the ACC tournament to make the NCAA tournament. I suppose, in theory, if they win what their final eight games and they're eighteen and thirteen, and they make it to the ACC championship game, maybe they don't have to win the ACC tournament. They basically have to win every other game from here on out. I don't see it happening. I don't think North Carolina makes the tournament. All right, speaking of not making the tournament, I do want to switch gears to the University of Memphis because Memphis is slowly becoming a very interesting national story. And as I said off the top of the show, I really do think this is a story that really it's not about Saturday and it's not even about this season, but it's about a culmination of a year and a half. Because when Penny Hardaway took this job at Memphis, he came in big and loud and braggadocious and this is what we're going to do and this is how it's going to go down and all that kind of stuff. And we all said at the time, we all said, this guy's talking a lot, can he back it up? And we are now in year two of the Penny Hardaway experience at Memphis. Obviously a good season last year, they win 22 games, go to the NIT, but Basically, the whole roster leaves, and in their place, Penny Hardaway brings in an entirely new roster that consists of the number one recruiting class in college basketball. Well, after Saturday, Saturday, Memphis lost to South Florida at home. South Florida, like North Carolina, was 10-12 coming into that game. Memphis loses. They are now 17-6, and and coming into the weekend, they were already in Joe Lenardi's Last four out of the NCAA tournament field. I'd imagine that when you lose to a 10 and 12 team, you are not that does not help your tournament resume. And I would say that at 17 and 6 overall, with a grand total of one win over a team that is currently projected to make the tournament, that is a a home win against Cincinnati. And with a really tough schedule ahead that includes two games against Houston, which is projected to make the tournament, with a home game against Wichita, with a road game against Cincinnati, with a road game at SMU has which has already beaten Memphis and a road game against UConn, I think that we are very realistically looking at a situation where Memphis does in fact miss the NCAA tournament. Now, before we get into kind of like the nitty-gritty and how much should be blamed on Penny Hardaway, I will say there's been a lot of things that have gone against Memphis this season, some of which are Penny Hardaway's responsibility and some of which aren't. Obviously, when you put together the number one recruiting class based on the number one player in the country and James Wiseman, you don't anticipate that you're only going to have him for three games the entire season. Now again, part of that's on Penny Hardaway. Don't pay him $11,000 to move him and his family to Memphis even if you're not positive that at that point you're going to be the head coach of the University of Memphis down the road. Just don't do it. You know that you're putting his eligibility on the line. You know you're not allowed to do it, whatever. But since then, you also can't anticipate that after an NCAA, that the NCAA is first of all going to suspend him for 13 games or whatever it was, that James Wiseman is just going to shut it down. He's going to go train to be a professional and never play again. You also can't anticipate that DJ Jeffries, who once James Wiseman left, was your second leading scorer, is going to go down with an injury and miss four to six weeks. You can't anticipate that in the South Florida game, Precious Achua, your best player, maybe your only consistent player, is going to go down with an injury late and miss the final couple minutes of the game. Those are things that are largely out of Penny Hardaway's control, and so I want to put the context out there because it wouldn't be fair to criticize Penny Hardaway like I'm about to without explaining that his, the best player in his recruiting class played three games and isn't going to come back. The second or third best player and second leading scorer on the team went down with a knee injury and is out four weeks, plus he missed a couple games with the flu, and also that Memphis's best player did not play Saturday. That also doesn't change the fact of this, of what I said a minute ago of the fact that Memphis is in fact 17-6. They did lose to one of the worst teams in their conference, and I don't care how many injuries you have, they had enough talent to win that game. They have some other inexcusable losses, including a 40-point loss at Tulsa. That's 40, 4-0, 4-0, 40 points to Tulsa. And that, as I said, they have a grand total of one win over a team currently projected to make the NCAA tournament. That stuff does fall on Penny Hardaway. And so let's get into what is going on this season, how much should be blamed on Penny Hardaway, and what's next for this program. Because I think that is the equally fascinating part of this whole conversation is what is next for the University of Memphis. So starting with Penny. Listen, I have been a defender since day one of Penny Hardaway that I believe that, listen, you don't accomplish what he has accomplished in basketball if you're not really smart, if you're not really bright, if you don't connect with kids. Listen, we all know the story, but he played at the highest level. He played well at the highest level. He was an all-star caliber player, one of the most skilled players, one of the smartest players. But also, after playing, he really has established himself as kind of this cultural figure in Memphis that has had a ton of success on the grassroots circuit. And so I said before the season, listen, you don't get all those kids to commit to playing for you. You don't get all those kids' parents to commit to playing for you if you don't know what you're doing. So I have not been the guy that has said, well, Penny can recruit, but he can't coach. But I do think it's a little bit fair to ask right now. And this is where my criticism of Penny Hardaway comes in. First of all, you get a couple losses you just can't have, right? Right? Tulsa by 40, you cannot lose. South Florida at home, you cannot lose if you're a serious NCAA tournament team. I would argue SMU at home, you can't lose if you're a serious NCAA tournament team. But let's even put them aside because they're actually playing pretty well. The other issues are the issues that we have been talking about with Memphis since before the season even started. You bring in the number one recruiting class, but you also have three or four players coming back that played serious minutes last year. They're going to want to play. They're expectations are that they're going to get more minutes, more shots, more stats, whatever, but you're also bringing five or six top 100 players into the program, and they want to play, and how do you juggle the minutes, how do you figure it out, how do you keep everybody happy, is somebody going to transfer, what's going to happen, this, that, and the other thing, and that's the part where I will be critical of Penny Hardaway, because I watch that team, and really outside Precious Achua, I have no idea on any given night What I'm getting from anybody. And that falls on the coach. And that falls on the coach because Memphis two or three times this season has completely reshuffled their starting lineup, has moved guys in and out, has taken guys out. They also play these crazy rotations where nobody knows how many minutes they're going to play, how often they're going to play, how much they're going to come back in. I mean, Memphis played nine guys on Saturday in that loss to South Florida. And keep in mind, that's after DJ Jeffries got hurt. And that's after James Wiseman left the team. So very easily, this could be still a 10 or 11-man rotation if everybody was healthy and here. And so again, that stuff falls on Penny Hardaway. And the fact that, again, they're losing games that they shouldn't. And I would also say this. Have the players developed the way that they're supposed to? Because that's the other thing, right? You're 17-6. and six, The record doesn't look bad. But if you really break it down, again, you haven't really beaten the teams that you're supposed to you beat Cincinnati, but you got smoked at Wichita State, Um, you, you lost to SMU, you lost to South Florida, and so you look at the situation, the team is underachieving, but also of the players on the team, who would you say has actually lived up to or exceeded expectations? They're starting power forward, Precious Chua, there's no doubt about it. He came in as like a fringe top 20, top 25 pick. He will be a lottery pick on draft night. That kid is phenomenal. But outside of him, Boogie Ellis, who is supposed to go to Duke, has been terrible. And I don't mean to criticize a kid. Just look at the stats. These are facts. This is not my opinion. It's fact. Damian Ball, who people were talking about, could he sneak into the lottery? Could he sneak into the first round? Barely plays anymore. Lester Quinones, another top 50 recruit, has been up and down. The guys that they returned, Alex Lomax, he's been okay. I actually think outside of Precious Achua, he's the one guy you could argue has maybe exceeded expectations. Tyler Harris, the other sophomore that returned, been up and down. And so I bring this up because, again, when a team is struggling and the issues that all of us projected going out into the season – too many guys. How do you figure out the minutes? Young players. All of those things are coming true. And so I think what's fascinating for Penny Hardaway is what's next. And by the way, I would add this. Penny Hardaway won a bunch of games last year, but it was mostly with Tubby Smith's players. So don't tell me that, well, you know, it's it's only year two and this and that. And I get all that. But he basically had as much success with Tubby Smith's players as Tubby Smith did. Keep in mind, Tubby Smith won 22 games in his final season at Memphis. He ends up getting fired because they want to bring in Penny Hardaway. Penny Hardaway takes that exact same team and wins 22 games with them the following season. And then this year, with Penny Hardaway's players, he's underachieving. And so, like I said, this does fall on Penny Hardaway because the issues that we saw coming six months ago, eight months ago, a year ago, are cropping up now the way that we said they would. Too many guys not enough minutes, too much youth. How do you balance it? How do you keep all these guys happy? Are you going to develop these guys? Are you going to, if they're coming in, three, four of them believing they're one and done players, are they actually going to be one and done players? And I would say largely, for the most part, things have been disappointing. Penny Hardaway has not delivered on what he's promised, and so it would be unfair for me to not criticize him. Now, I would also say this. There's plenty of time to figure it out, and there are plenty of wins to get, to figure it out, and I think that to me is what's the most fascinating part of this Penny Hardaway thing, is what happens next, because when I look at this Penny Hardaway thing, and this Memphis thing, it's, it's, it's about right now, being 17-6, and six, being on the outside of the NCAA tournament picture, but it's about what's next, and that's the fascinating part to me, both in the next couple months, and in the next year, two years, five years, whatever, because in the next couple months, they still have time to make a run to the NCA tournament. I don't see any reason to think that they will actually make that run, but I think it's at least possible. If they want to make the NCAA tournament, the path is there for them. As I said, they still have two games against Houston, which is currently projected as a tournament team. They have a home game against Wichita. They have a road game against Cincinnati. They have a road game against UConn. They have a road game against SMU. They have plenty of chances to make a run if they want to, if they're capable of it. But. On the flip side, what have we seen that makes us think that they're capable of doing it? They got smoked at Wichita State. They barely beat Cincinnati in Memphis when they were actually playing well. And now they're going to go to Cincinnati and get a win? UConn almost beat them in Memphis. Now they're going to go to UConn and get a win. They they lost to SMU at home. Now they're going to go to SMU and get a win. And so I only bring all this up because to me it reflects on Penny Hardaway and it does, when you're the coach, stuff falls on your shoulders. I would also say what's also fascinating is not just what is going to happen uh, in the next couple months, but in the next couple years. Because remember, when Penny Hardaway came to Memphis, he said we're going to recruit the best of the best and we're going to turn this into a little mini NBA factory here at Memphis. Well, what happens when... James Wiseman leaves after three games. Precious Achua lived up to the hype. But Boogie Ellis has struggled. Damian Ball has struggled. All these other guys have struggled. What happens then? They have no players currently committed for the next recruiting cycle. And I gotta be honest, if most of the players that that you recruited this year underachieved and the team underachieved, and I'm a five-star recruit watching that, it's tough for me to commit to play for you going forward. And so that's what I think is fascinating. Memphis is in the final five for two of the top remaining uncommitted players. Jalen Green from California. Now look, there's a very good chance that he goes pro. But if he goes to college, all signs have pointed towards Memphis for like literally a year. But now all of a sudden people are saying Auburn could get in the mix. People are saying that Oregon could get in the mix. And it falls back, at least in part, to Memphis struggling. Greg Brown being recruited by Michigan and Texas and Kentucky. Another guy. Then I'm telling you, Memphis is in the mix. But if I'm looking at Memphis and Penny Hardaway can't get this team to the tournament and none of these guys got better except Precious Achua, I don't know what happens. And so because of it, I think it's going to be a fascinating story going forward. I think it's to be fascinating to follow. And I think as fascinating as Memphis has been over the last year, these next couple months and the next year will be even more fascinating. And again, Yes, I'm being a little critical. Yes, part of it is out of Penny's control, but part of it is in Penny's control, and when you're the head coach, a lot of this stuff falls on you, and so I'll be fascinated to see if they can right the ship and get things right before it's too late and before they miss the NCAA tournament. All right, let's switch gears here a little bit uh, and bring back a segment that you guys honestly loved the last time I did it. And so I say that this is the podcast that is sweeping America. I think this is the segment that sweeps America. And it is called Where Aaron Was Right, Where Aaron Was Wrong. I have stolen it from my buddy Colin Cowherd. I want to give him credit for the intellectual property that is this segment. But what it is is very simply this, is that over the course of doing this podcast a couple times a week, over the course of doing other interviews, doing radio, coming on other podcasts, I put out a lot of opinions. And while I like to think that I'm always right... I do miss on some and so this is kind of a fun way to hold myself accountable. It's also kind of a fun way to hit on topics that maybe over the course of a show it's not worth 10 or 15 minutes talking about but two, three, four minutes doing it and so where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, the stuff in the last couple weeks that I've both been right on and wrong on, let's get started. Where Aaron was right. The Seton Hall Pirates. How about my Seton Hall Pirates, baby? You can really chase or, or trace this, excuse me, back to the day the NBA draft deadline came last year. Miles Powell announces that he's returning to Seton Hall. And I said, and I wrote and I said, This is a team that is good enough to make the Final Four. Fast forward to the early part of the season, I say, this is a team that's good enough to win the national championship. They're veteran, they're experienced, they're old, and they're fearless. And through 23 games of the season, I have been proven largely correct. Seton Hall is now 18-5 and on the season. They are now 10-1 in Big East play. The Big East arguably the toughest conference top to bottom in college basketball. And what I love is this. They are now 6-0 on the road in Big East games that included a win on Saturday at Villanova where they beat Villanova to improve to, again, 18-5 overall. And they now have a three-game lead in the Big East. So barring something catastrophic, they're going to win the Big East regular season. They're going to be the number one seed at Madison Square Garden. And they are, again, a team that can win the national championship. And I've been over this time and time again. But what I love about this team is their toughness. Miles Powell would be my national player of the year if the season ended today. But what I love about them is other guys have stepped up. Miles Powell was in foul trouble on Saturday and largely didn't play down the stretch against Villanova. They got the big guy, Sandro, back. He's playing well. They've got another guard named Quincy McKnight who's playing well. Another Miles named Miles Cale who's playing well. And I am telling you right now, Seton Hall is good enough to win the national championship. Where Aaron was wrong, the Michigan State Spartans. So Michigan State opened Big Ten play Dominant win over Illinois, dominant win over Michigan, and I said, you know, I think Michigan State's, I think the Michigan State that we thought we were going to see in the preseason is back, and I did a big thing in whatever it was, the middle of January, Michigan State has arrived, the team that we were expecting, I uh, yeah. That is not correct. They have lost four of their last seven now and three of their last four on the road following a loss at Michigan on Saturday afternoon. The bottom line is, look, you can go to a million different things. I've talked about it. Um Aaron Henry, the guy that we thought, well first of all, I think you can go back to Josh Langford just never coming back. I don't think they've ever recovered from that. We thought Aaron Henry was going to step up and be an effective kind of second guy for this team or third guy behind Xavier Tillman and Cassius Winston. It hasn't happened. And really the issue that I pinpointed all the way back in the Big 10 ACC challenge. Michigan State does not shoot the ball well from 3. They are just 34% from behind the arc, and what that basically means is this, is if Cassius Winston isn't getting to the rim, if Xavier Tillman isn't throwing down an alley-oop, they really do struggle to score. They really don't have enough options on that end of the floor, and this is not going to get better. They play at Illinois on Tuesday, which is maybe the best team in the Big Ten right now, and if it's not the best team, it's Maryland, who Michigan State actually plays at home next weekend. So, it's bad for Michigan State. They're now 8-5 and five in the Big Ten. They still have seven Big Ten games left. As I mentioned off the top of the show, they were a four-seed in that opening bracketology. They will not be a four-seed going forward. This is not a team right now that can win a national championship, despite what I said a few weeks ago, where Aaron was right. I've said since day one, UCLA fans, be patient with Mick Cronin. I know when you started the search, you thought you were going to get John Calipari, which we'll talk about John Calipari in a minute. Well, you thought you were going to get Tony Bennett or Jay Wright. You were bummed when it ended with Mick Cronin, but I am telling you right now, and I told you then, I said, I think Mick Cronin will work. This program needs toughness. This program needs accountability. I thought things got way too lax under Steve Alford. I think it was way too much about the recruiting rankings under Steve Alford rather than building a team, and that if you give Mick Cronin time, he will figure it out. Well, guess what? Over the last two weeks, they have won three of their last four games. They beat Colorado, a really good team that is an NCAA tournament team at home. And on Saturday night, they went to Arizona and beat Arizona in Tucson. Why did they do it? It's because they are playing Mick Cronin-style defense. They held Arizona to 25% shooting. 24% from three, and they themselves played like a Mick Cronin Cincinnati team. 51% from the field. The big guys down low were phenomenal. And oh, by the way, they out-rebounded Arizona. So to me, UCLA, they're a year or two away from being interesting, but I said you got to give Mick Cronin time, UCLA fans. I know you're impatient. I know you think it's 1968 and you should win every national championship by 30 points. That's not the world we live in. Give Mick Cronin time. He is going to be good, and he has largely been where Aaron was wrong. Let's stay in the same game. Arizona. Obviously, uh, two, three weeks ago after Arizona actually also beat Colorado, I said, look, I think Arizona has now turned a corner. I'm not saying that Arizona has played poorly because prior to that UCLA game, they had lost they had won their previous three games, but they also lost on the road at Arizona State. And they also have largely struggled on the road this season. Now, last weekend they did sweep the Washington schools, but that comes with a little bit of a caveat because Washington State is bad and Washington has completely fallen apart since Quad A Green has left. And so to me, this is a team that is still now, they were ranked this week. I don't believe that they're a top 25 team. I do believe that they're an NCAA tournament team, but if you look at their resume, it really is short on great wins. Now, they're going to do enough probably to get into the NCAA tournament, but they're just 16-7 and seven overall, 6-4 and four in the Big East, just not sold, that this is a team that once they get to the tournament can actually do damage. Where Aaron was right. How about my UConn Huskies? I've been telling you for weeks, I said it in November, I said it after they should have beaten Villanova about three weeks ago, I said UConn is on the brink. You gotta be patient, you gotta trust the process UConn fans, it will get there. Once UConn wins a big game or two, they will get over the hump and there will be a snowball trickle down effect. I said it after the Nova game. I said it after they should have beat Wichita at home. I said it after they should have beat Houston on the road. I said it after they should have beat Tulsa at home. I kept saying it, kept saying it, kept saying it, and it feels like they have finally turned the corner. They beat Tulsa convincingly the other night. They beat Cincinnati at home on Sunday. And maybe most importantly, and I give Dan Hurley credit for this, he has turned the team over to his freshman three freshmen now in the starting lineup, and James Booknight, assuming he progresses the way that he should, he is a future pro. He is the next great player to go from UConn to the NBA and have success. 21 points against 23 points against Tulsa, 21 points against Cincinnati on Sunday, a cook a cook, another player who I think is developing nicely. I truly believe that even though UConn is leaving the AAC for the Big East, that next year, 2021, UConn will be a tournament team. I've been telling you to be patient and they have had success. Last one, where Aaron was right, how about my boy Mike White? I told you two weeks ago, he's deep South Shaka Smart. He just isn't that good of a coach. It's nothing personal. I'm not going after him. I don't hate his family. I don't hate Florida. I am a realist, though, and I think you could say each of the past three years that team has underachieved, and certainly this year where they were picked as a top 10 team in the preseason. Don't know if you saw, they lost by 17 on the road at Ole Miss the other day, 17 points on the road at Ole Miss no excuse for that. There is way too much talent. I have had a couple people in basketball that I respect come to me and say, Torres, I think you're going a little too hard on him. He has won some tournament games. He's not as bad as Shaka Smart. That may be correct. But what I cannot also deny is that his teams have largely underachieved and that time and time again, his teams come out looking unprepared, unready, unwilling to play in the big games. Maybe they turn around the thing. I said it a minute ago um, when it came to Memphis, who's maybe the only team more disappointing or about as disappointing as Florida – is there is plenty of time for Florida to turn around. They still have a lot of big games left. They host LSU. They obviously play two games against the University of Kentucky. They also play a couple games against the University of Tennessee. They have time to figure this thing out, but I'm looking at them right now, 14-9 overall, 6-4 and four in the SEC, and I think there's a very realistic chance that they either miss the NCAA tournament or they are right on the cusp, cusp come Selection Sunday. Mike White... Shaka Smart of the Deep South. And yes, I am going to say that until I am proven wrong. But right now, I think he is vastly overrated. Let's wrap the show. Two quick topics that I do want to get to before we get out of here. The first one is Worldwide West. And so I actually did a, a big thing on this on Instagram over the weekend. And so again, if you're not following me on, tw- on Instagram, excuse me, you need to find me. Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram because I did talk about this already, but but last week the story comes out, uh, Leon Rose, a former big time NBA agent, has taken a role basically as the GM of the New York Knicks. Leon Rose is going to bring World Wide West, who we all know, he's kind of this middleman in, in basketball, nobody knows exactly what he does, but he is a guy that has been largely linked for decades now to the best high school players in America. And so, of course, many of those players have ended up with John Calipari, coach teams through the years, dating all the way back to Dewan Wagner in the early 2000s, Derek Rose, Tyreek Evans, Michael Kidd Gilchrist, on and on and on and on and on. And so because there's a very obvious connection between Worldwide West and because there's a very obvious connection between him and John Calipari, a lot of people, more than I would have expected, asked me, hit me up on Twitter or on Instagram privately, "AT, do you think that there is anything to this Worldwide West going to the Knicks and could he bring John Calipari with him?" I was stunned by it, but my answer is a definitive no. So first of all, let's just get the let's just put facts out there. Fact is, John Calipari signed a 10 year, basically a lifetime extension at the University of Kentucky for $86 million. And so I don't think that he is leaving Kentucky ever. But even if he did, it would only be for the perfect situation in the NBA. And I don't believe that the Knicks are the perfect situation. And I understand that, John, uh, that World Wide West is a, a contact of his, a friend of his. Uh, Leon Rose is somebody that he is also very close with. But I'll be honest. Think about it from John Calipari's perspective. He's been in basketball for 40 years. He has a lot of friends in a lot of places. He probably has friends in every major uh, NBA front office right now, all 30 teams. World Wide West has plenty of friends as well. That doesn't mean that they're all candidates for the New York Knicks coaching job. And I think when you look at it from that perspective, you look at it from the fact that, oh, by the way, just because you're friends with somebody, and this is the part that that cracks me up, right? I think sometimes as fans, and I want to backtrack, sometimes as fans, if I can give you guys one piece of advice as fans, it's that the same things that plague you or that are issues for you in your personal life are very much issues for coaches and players in their personal lives as well. And so, whenever a job opens up, things that have to be considered are: Does my family want to move there? Would my would my wife want to move there? Would I want to send my kids there? So, just as an example, think about say the USC football coaching job. Okay, USC opens up; it's got this great tradition, whatever. But LA is also insanely expensive to live. It's going to be insanely expensive for your assistant coaches. And do you, want to send your, do you want to be in L.A.? Do you want all the stuff that comes with L.A.? And so that's an example that I'm going to use. And so why do I bring it up? It's because I will take the real world example of John Calipari. Take out the fact that him and World Wide West are friends and apply real world logic to the situation. We all have friends. We all have a lot of friends. We all have friends in every walk of life. But just because you're friends with somebody, and this is where the real world stuff comes in, it doesn't mean you want to work with them. It doesn't mean that you want that person to be your boss, which is what World Wide West would be. And so while I respect the relationship between the two, I just don't think that John Calipari, at this, John Calipari is the boss of the University of Kentucky. You could say it's Mitch Barnhart, it's not Mitch Barnhart. It's John Calipari. He runs that city, he runs that state, he runs the university. Nobody really he doesn't really answer to anybody. And just because World Wide West is your friend, it doesn't mean that you want to go work with him. It doesn't mean that he necessarily trusts Worldwide West as a boss. On the flip side, it doesn't mean that World Wide West wants to work with him. And I would also say to wrap it up, to bring it full circle to what I said a minute ago, remember John Calipari has a lifetime, essentially, contract at Kentucky, okay, and so if he is going to give that up, I truly believe it will only be for one of the best jobs in the NBA, a job that he can go to and have the chance to win right away, because the one thing about the NBA is this, things change quick, man, you can pay a a coach $40 million over five years or whatever. If the star player doesn't like you, in six months, you could be gone. So first of all, there's the financial stuff of how much are you going to have to pay John Calipari to get him to seriously consider leaving Kentucky, especially when the cost of living is so much more in New York. But beyond that, it's that does John Calipari want to go to an organization that is in a major rebuild? And as I said on Instagram the other day, the Knicks are two years away from being two years away. It's just, does John Calipari want to give up the best coaching job in college basketball to go to an organization that's two years away from being two years away? And the answer is obviously no, because James Dolan won't have the patience to see a rebuild through. So even if John Calipari trusts Leon Rose, even if John Calipari trusts World Wide West, does he trust Jim Dolan? And there is a 20-year track record to say that he shouldn't trust Jim Dolan. And so while I think that it makes sense for Leon Rose and Worldwide West to take these jobs, because it is the Knicks... Those guys have no experience running a basketball organization, and I don't know if they had any other real options in terms of if you want to run a basketball team, this might be the only shot you get. Well, John Perry's going to get a shot at the NBA anytime he wants it, and so I just think it makes no sense for him. I don't buy that because he is friends with World Wide West, that matters. Like I said, I got a lot of great friends. I don't know that I want to work for him every day. I don't know that I'd want them to be my boss. I don't know that I want to be around them every day, especially when I'm somebody like John Calipari who has full autonomy. So I don't think he'll listen. I don't think he's interested. He has already said that he's not interested. And I believe, I, I think he's going to retire at Kentucky. But even if he doesn't, I just don't see the scenario where this is the job for him. Listen, if Anthony Davis calls him tomorrow and says, hey, me, you, LeBron, you're the only guy that can get us over the top, yeah, John Calipari probably listens to that one. If Devin Booker and Carl Anthony Towns end up somewhere, maybe he listens to that one. I don't think this is the one, and I don't think the Knicks are going to be in position anytime soon where the job would interest John Calipari. All right, last thing I want to talk about, and this is going to kind of be my shout-out of the day, okay? I know my shout-out of the day is usually something goofy, offbeat, you know, Jaquan Lyle throwing a party where there's a shooting, Quadre Green flunking off a team. Today's shout-out of the day is a little bit more serious And it's gonna go to Bob Knight. I thought the thing at Indiana on Saturday was so cool. And I'll tell you this, is is a couple things. One, I get that most of you are not Indiana fans. And because you're not Indiana fans, I get that most of you either grew up hating Bobby Knight or have parents who grew up hating Bobby Knight or have grandparents. And Bobby Knight was never like a guy that you could wrap your arms around. And in the case of yesterday, you literally couldn't wrap your arms around him because Dick Vitale tried to hug him and Bob Knight almost strangled him. I get that you don't like Bob Knight. I get that things did not end well for him at Indiana. I get that he did some things that were flat out wrong. I get you can't choke a player. I understand all that. And if you hate Bobby Knight and, 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 and you're going to turn off the podcast right now and you're not going to listen to me, that's fine. What I would also say is this. I have talked to a number of his former players about him, including actually Steve Alford, who I all of a sudden have beef with, but I've talked to Steve Alford about it. I've talked to other guys about it, and what I will tell you is this. About four, five, six years ago, because Bob Knight kind of really in his prime was even before my time as a college basketball fan. I kind of came up in the mid to late 90s, Rick Pitino at Kentucky, Jim Calhoun at UConn, John Calipari at UMass. That was kind of my era where I came up. So Bob Knight was kind of already on the way out. He wasn't like Bob Knight at that point. But what I did was about three or four years ago, I read the book, A Season on the Brink, by John Feinstein, who, unrelated, John Feinstein blocked me on Twitter for some reason, don't know why, but it is one of the best sports books I've ever read. It is a year-long, behind-the-scenes look, in bed with Bob Knight in the Indiana Hoosiers. And what you see in that book is that Bob Knight is one of the most driven, successful, hardworking coaches in the history of the sport. And I think that's why it hit me in a different way than it hit other people, is that what has been lost in the shuffle with Bob Knight is that he was... In his era, the greatest coach by far in college basketball. Now, by the end, he wasn't. By the time most of you listening remember, he wasn't. But this was a guy that won three national championships from 1976 to 1987. This was a guy that perennially had Indiana in the championship conversation. And he was a guy that, although some of his coaching tactics were not ideal, you know, choking players. Never had a whiff of NCAA scandal. Never had a whiff of NCAA controversy. He graduated his players, and I think his players largely love him and respect him as reflected by the fact that they were all there on Saturday to support him. And so what I would encourage you to do, go back and read a season on the brink. Go back and learn about Bob Knight because he was one of the great coaches in this sport. He left 20 years ago. He was fired 20 years ago, as he should have been. But he came back, and I'm glad that he had that moment. My understanding is he's getting much older, that maybe his mind isn't as sharp as it once was. I actually think that is why he did not speak at that ceremony. Um, But I hope time heals all wounds. If it hasn't for you personally, I get it. But this guy was an icon. This guy was an all-timer, never broke NCAA rules, did things the right way uh, between the white lines, and I am glad that that guy who, you know, not trying to be sarcastic or funny or facetious, he might not be around very much longer, and I am glad that he got that moment. All right, I think that's it for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I feel like I covered a lot of ground, guys. I feel like I covered a lot of ground. It was a lot of fun, and I appreciate you guys, as always, listening to this show. Remember, you can always subscribe and listen to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, and you can do it on iTunes. You can do it on Podcast Addict. You can do it on Podbean. Tune in radio, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Please make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. I did mention we have some big guests coming up. I am just telling you, get locked, get loaded. We got some good guests on the way. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review, follow me on Instagram. Like I said, some of you said you want the show more than more than one or twice a week. Well, guess what? That's your best chance to get more AT uh, pretty much all the time. If you have any questions, I'll obviously answer them kind of uh, as they come in and all that stuff. But again, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast. And finally, if you have any questions, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. That is all for today back later this week shout out to my main man torrent craig the australian legend shout out to rachel who hates my voice i know this was a tough show for you rachel but i appreciate you gritting your teeth through it that is all for today and i will be back later this week